It's quite a challenging book, Jonah. It's one of the most popular kids' books, obviously. Um, I wrote uh, about 15 years ago, I wrote some songs for, for Stonely Kids where they were doing Jonah. I was thinking about that this week. And um, none, pretty much none of the things I'm about to talk about are in any of those songs, basically. <laughs> so the kids' songs say all the good stuff. I'm going to quote one of the songs, not one of the ones I wrote, but one of the kids' songs today. And there's historical inaccuracies in some of the kids' songs. Some of it's accurate, some of it's not. But the next 20 minutes or so is gonna, it is gonna challenge our sense of morality and our perception of God's grace and actually how, just how deep and how wide and how amazing the mercy of God is to people that don't deserve it. Um, we're not gonna ask or answer the question, if God, why evil? There's a really good book, Sarah, if you can put that. Thank you. Um, it's a really good book that I read recently uh, by Norman Geisler called If God Why Evil. And it goes into methodically asking and answering, you know, bit by bit, well, how can there be a God if there is evil? It's a really good book. There's lots of good books, but that's one of the ones that I've found recently is really good. So I'm not going to ask that question today, um, but I'm going to try and ask and answer the question, if evil, why mercy? If there's evil in the world... If no one deserves to be saved, how can a holy God choose to be merciful? I'm going to try and ask and answer that. There will be some things in the next few minutes, which I know there's some 11-year-olds here. Um, there's going to be some history, which is going to be quite challenging. So if you've got kids with you that, that might struggle with some of the historical um, actions of people in Nineveh, then that's just a quick warning. I mentioned it to my 11-year-old son this morning who's here and said, is this going to be a problem for you? And he said, no. Yeah, that's fine. Um, the only thing he said to me, actually, was don't wave your arms too much when you're preaching. You do that. So I will try not to. Okay. I'm going to try not to. Uh, so last week, Ollie quoted from Psalm 145. I watched the live stream last week. Ollie quoted from Psalm 145, and he led people here in prayers of repentance, thanking God that he's slow to anger. I was watching online, and... Um, that phrase, God is slow to anger, is also in the book of Jonah. It's also in the book of Exodus. Um, and it's a good thing that God is slow to anger. I'm, waving my, I'm aware that I'm just waving my arms. Um, the fact that God is slow to anger was a good thing for Moses. It was a good thing for Abraham. It was a good thing for David and Jonah and Paul, the thief on the cross. You know, we, we talk about the thief on the cross, this person that led a horrendous life of crime and sin and deservedly was crucified next to Jesus, who didn't deserve to be there, turns to Jesus with almost his final breath, puts his faith in him, and Jesus says, you're forgiven for all the things you've done. And it's kind of easy to gloss over, hang on a minute, this person had lived a horrendous life right to his final breath, but Jesus still turns to him and says, your faith has saved you. And it's... That's part of the challenge of Jonah, kind of looking at morality and ethics and sin and seeing that the grace of God can completely, completely take that away, completely forgive it. Um, so it's a good thing for us, good thing for you and me. And the book of Jonah, one of the things it forces us to also do is ask the question of ourselves, am I always pleased that God is slow to anger? Because it's kind of easy to say, thank you, Lord, you're slow to anger. 
it's not always easy to believe what we're saying. And thank God that he's slow to anger. So I want to start by asking some questions. The reason for these questions will become apparent as we go, but just to get you thinking, first of all. First question, do you believe that anyone, literally anyone, so a thief on the cross with his dying breath, who genuinely repents and puts their faith in Jesus will be saved? Now, probably, I'm assuming, we're all thinking, yes, I'm guessing. I'm actually not going to ask the question, does anyone disagree, because then we'll get into a a thing. (laughs) And the reason I kind of put the word genuinely there is to kind of try and cover the big conversation that this question throws up. But Romans 10, verse 9 says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So at one point in her life, that's what Bonnie did. And now she's saved for eternity and with him. And that's it. And that levels everything. And that forgives everything she ever did that was an affront to God because... If you do that, you will be saved, which is amazing news. Next question I want to ask, do you believe that there is any sin that would exclude, again, a genuinely repentant sinner from being saved? Now, this point probably, in fact, when I went through this with Clive the other day and kind of just said, here, Clive, this is what I'm thinking of talking about, Clive began to interrupt me halfway through that, saying, yeah, but, 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 but. At this point, if you can put the next bit up, Sarah, at this point, probably some people are thinking, but Jesus talked about an unforgivable sin. So surely there's something. The unforgivable sin, sinning against the Holy Spirit that Jesus talked about, is rejecting him and denying that he's God. And at that point, at that, you know, if that's the truth for you, God can't forgive you. Because we've just seen that the way that we get saved is declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God rose him from the dead, and we're saved. And if we don't do that, we can't be saved. So you're not going to accidentally sin against the Holy Spirit. You're not going to wake up one day and go, I hope I don't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit today. And probably if you do wake up and think, I hope I don't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you're not going to. Because you're concerned that, you know, you know what I mean. So I would suggest, and I hope you'd agree, there's nothing, there's no sin you can commit which would preclude you from being saved. Again, this could lead to longer conversations, and that's fine if it does. Um, Another question. Is there anything that is impossible for God? No, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to be going, you're supposed to be singing the songs that say impossible things. Um, if God does impossible things, and nothing is impossible for he, 25 years ago. Um, but some of you already said, God, it's impossible for God to lie. Romans 6, it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to sin. It's impossible for God to stop being God. It's impossible for God to create a rock which is more powerful than him because he can't create something more powerful than him because he's infinite and everything he creates is finite in this realm and so on. So there are some things that are impossible for God and we'll come to another one a little bit later on. Okay. Final question before we get into Jonah. Can you think of anyone who doesn't deserve mercy from God? 
Would you? And you might be looking at the person next to you and going, you don't deserve mercy from God, possibly. But you know, you open your phone app. Sam, are you looking at Lindsay? There you go. It's amazing that all the answers are perfect. It's good. No, there's no one that deserves mercy from God. No one. Literally no one. So you can open your phone app, and, and, and we will later, in part of the challenge of this, look at current events. You can open your phone app and go, that person definitely doesn't deserve mercy from God. Definitely not. Well, also, neither does Lindsay, and neither does John. And neither does Charlie. And definitely Clive. <laughs> definitely. None of us deserves mercy from God. The Bible says so. Okay? And we know it. We know it. And it's going to be a challenge. When we look at this, it, it's, it's going to challenge our sense of morality and ethics. Now, we all worship something. Every single person on earth worships something. All of us worship something. Um, there's a picture on screen of, this is a, de- a depiction of uh, Israel worshipping the golden calf. Um, so where they said, you know, we've had enough of waiting, build us a golden calf, we'll worship that now. You know, even thousands and thousands of years ago, the people God chose could turn away pretty easily, very easily actually, and just say, we're going to worship that instead. And we're going to just drift over here and worship something that isn't God. I just want to play this um, short video, which, and I know this is, this is art or it's theatre or, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily, not necessarily saying look at that picture and now look at this video, but I'll just let you watch it and, and decide. So... You can play that, Sarah, quickly. This is from the Commonwealth Games three weeks ago. decide, every person in here, you can decide um, whether it's just art and it's harmless. For me, it, it doesn't look accidental and it doesn't look like, well, the boring centre is in Birmingham, so that's fine. And that's, interestingly, the BBC on iPlayer edited out that final bit. Sam had to edit that in the other day because they edited out the bit where people actually bowed in worship to the ball. It's not there on the BBC iPlayer site. And my suggestion, I will come back to this a bit later, my suggestion is, in 21st century England, we're not that much different to Israel saying, we're going to worship something and it will be that. And we all do it. We all can do it. So into the book of Jonah. Um, A quick synopsis of Jonah. The Bible verses for this won't be on the screen. The synopsis will, and I'll read the Bible verses. So if you've got the book of Jonah open... Um, we'll head into that, but I'll, I'll read these verses as we go here. In a nutshell, this is what happens. 
God calls Jonah to get up and go to Nineveh to preach to the Assyrians because, as it says, their evil has come up before me. So chapter one, verse two says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. So Jonah got up, but he set sail towards Tarshish instead. And Jonah one, verse three says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah isn't lethargic or lazy. He's not, not doing what God's asked him to do because he, doesn't, he can't be bothered. He gets up and goes somewhere else, probably further away than Nineveh would have been. Nineveh, Nineveh would be modern day Iraq. Jonah set sail from southwestern side of Israel. And there's kind of conjecture as to where Tarshish would be, but it could be southern Spain, or it could be Italy, or it could be Lebanon. But it, it, it's a distance away, basically. It's a great distance away. Um, so if you're going to get up and go somewhere away from the presence of the Lord, you've got to really want to get up and move away from the presence of the Lord, which is, which is very sad. <laughs> on Jonah's part. So God, in his sovereignty, provides transport, the whale, or probably more accurately, a big fish rather than a whale, to take Jonah to Nineveh anyway. And Jonah 1, verse 17 says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then when Jonah got to Nineveh, he preached a very short message of repentance. Very short message. Chapter three, we'll come back to uh, chapter two later, towards the end. Chapter three, verse four, says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, which is a pretty short preach and a pretty to the point preach, and he didn't invite anyone to their seeker-friendly guest meeting and say, don't worry, if you can't make it, you can come at Easter instead. (laughs) It was 40 days, you've got 40 days to repent because you're a city whose evil has come up before the Lord. And now, because he's slow to anger, and because he's merciful, and because he's kind, he's still giving you 40 days to come to repentance. But there's an urgency, and you have to, because you've got 40 days. So what happens is, Nineveh repents and gets saved. So chapter three, verses six to nine, this is amazing, these words are amazing. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence of his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You know, the message that Jonah preached, which was, you've got 40 days, you have to repent, that was the message that Nineveh needed to hear. They didn't need to hear, come to our seeker-friendly service. It says in, you know, verses six to nine, that even when they repented, they did it mightily. 
They did it angrily and aggressively, you know, because that's who they were. They were an aggressive people and they needed to kind of aggressively throw themselves on the mercy of God. God always talks to us how we need him to talk to us. And if we do need a seeker-friendly guest meeting, I'm not knocking seeker-friendly guest meetings. If that's what we need, is that what you and I need? That's That's what you and I need. The people of Nineveh needed, you have to repent. And actually, for some of, some of us, the message needs to be, you have to repent. You do. You have to repent and turn to God. So, in chapter 4, Jonah is angry with God for saving them. So, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly that God had had mercy on Nineveh, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You know, Jonah's Jonah's a Hebrew, he's one of God's people, but he's, he's happy at this point to have the audacity to kind of say, well, the reason I didn't go to Nineveh was because I knew you'd save them. Because I know you're merciful, and I don't want them to be saved, so I went there instead. And it's, you know, Ben read from the psalm this morning that God saves Israel and to the ends of the earth. And Jonah was a Hebrew and was sent to the ends of the earth, to Nineveh, to go and preach, you can be saved as well. But you have to repent and you have to put your faith in God. And that's what he didn't want to do. And right at the end of uh, the book of Jonah, God saves Nineveh out of compassion, out of his own compassion. The last verse of of, uh, Jonah says, God says to Jonah, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. I always love the way that ends. It's just brilliant. It's like, there's 120,000 people there who need salvation and they've got a lot of cows. And then the book finishes. Um, but I do find it, inter- I find it interesting um, that idol worship in the Old Testament was often cows. It was often animals. And this, for me, I think is possibly a way of God saying, you know what? I'm going to save these people and I'm also not going to destroy their, their cows. Not, not their idols, their cows. You know, they've got cattle. And actually cattle is something that I've made. I'm not going to destroy the cattle even though they've been turning to worship idols. I don't know. That's just my... Something that interests my... INTJ personality type. So that's, that's a synopsis of Jonah, okay? Now, this is where things can get a little bit um, challenging for us. This is one of the kids' songs. I don't know who wrote this song, but here's a kid's song. It says, Nineveh was a city of sin. The jazzing and jiving made a terrible din. People playing the rock and roll and the Lord said, well, bless my soul. The people wouldn't listen, dance night and day, no time to work, no time to play. They went on dancing by day and night and the Lord, he said, well, this ain't right. Now, and it goes on, and on, and on. Most of that isn't historically accurate. Nineveh was a city of sin. I guess we could say jazz always makes a terrible din, maybe. 
or maybe not, or maybe not. But most of that, artistic license at least, okay? Now, here's where it gets a little bit, ooh, horrible histories, okay? So if you, if, in all seriousness, if, if, if you're next to a younger one who might struggle with the next minute, then here it comes. Um, this is what history says of the Assyrians. So these are the people that God sent Jonah to because he loved them, because he wanted to save them, because his salvation extends to the ends of the earth and to every people. This is the people that God says, you have to repent and turn to me, and if you do, I will save you, because I'm gracious. So... The Assyrians in Nineveh, they would cut off people's ears, noses, and lips for relatively minor offenses. So if you outstay your parking at Airborne today, bad news. They also, and this is, this is gruesome, okay? They also skinned their captives alive and made mountains out of their severed heads. They threw babies and children from the tops of city walls onto the rocks below so that, they would, so that those babies wouldn't grow up to avenge their own fathers who had been killed by the Assyrians. They put hooks through the noses of their captives after they had gouged out their eyes. And in the book of Nahum, it calls Nineveh the city of blood. So that's who God said to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh because they're evil and I want to have mercy on them and I want to save them, and I want them to know my grace. And I think, understandably, and I'll put this in modern context in a minute, we can probably identify with Jonah when he said, I don't, I don't really want that to happen. Jonah's motive may have been, but it's for Israel and not for the ends of the earth. But to be honest, his motive may have been, they're horrible. They're murderers who skin people alive and make mountains of severed heads. And I don't want them to be saved. And probably fair enough, you know, humanly speaking, that's a fair point. Um, And there's a challenging verse in Matthew that Jesus says. And in this context, and in light of who the Assyrians in Nineveh were, this is a really really hugely challenging pair of verses. Jesus said, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And we'll get into chapter two in a minute of Jonah. And he said, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented of the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the people that did all of those unspeakable atrocities, Jesus himself says, those people are forgiven. They repented. And that's a huge challenge. And if I put it into a very contemporary context, I'm not saying this, not saying this now for shock value or, or to deliberately make anyone uncomfortable. But I think, again, you know, even kind of looking at this as kind of a horrible histories, we can kind of easily go, oh, well, it's great that God saved those people because they were awful. So I'm really not saying this just to shock at all, but it's just... Uh, a biblical, or you know, an example of the God of the Bible and how merciful he is and how forgiving he is and how leveling it is when we all put our faith in him and get saved. That being the only way we can get saved. You know, this week, this week, an 87-year-old man 
was indiscriminately murdered on his mobility scooter by someone that just knifed him to death in the street in London. And I guess the question is, and we all know the answer to this question, if, if that man, if the person that killed the man truly repents and puts his faith in Jesus, just like Bonnie did, and just like Alan did, and just like David did, and just like you have, and I have, if the person that committed that horrendous act of sin, if he truly turns and puts his faith in Jesus and repents, does he get saved just as Bonnie did? Yes. And that's a challenge. And it should be a challenge. And that was the challenge to Jonah, that I don't want this to happen. And possibly even more chillingly, and this is, you know, I was thinking this through last night. I've got three kids. The, my youngest daughter's eight. And a 23-year-old has just been arrested this week for assaulting a six-year-old girl in Manchester. If that 23-year-old man truly turns and repents and puts his faith in Jesus, can he be forgiven for every sin he's ever committed, even assaulting a six-year-old girl? Yes, that's how far the grace of God actually extends. And it's difficult to comprehend that it goes that far. But every time we do sing songs and read from the Bible and have contributions where we're talking about how incredible the grace of God is, it literally goes that far. Now, notwithstanding, forgiveness doesn't mean justice is ignored. God can be merciful and just. And there's currently someone that's been arrested for murdering an 87-year-old man and he is going to prison and he deserves to be in prison. And if he gets saved in prison and puts his faith in Jesus and repents, he will stay in prison because he needs to be there and he deserves to be there and he's committed a crime that keeps him there. So I'm not in any way suggesting this is commuting a sentence and offering a pardon for a civil crime at all. Same goes for the uh, 23-year-old that assaulted the girl. You've got to pay for that crime you have committed. But if the great leveller for all of us is, as C.S. Lewis put it actually, C.S. Lewis said there's two, only two types of people on earth. There are those who deliberately, willingly choose to say to God, thy will be done. And there are those who reluctantly, in the end, God says to them, thy will be done and we all choose to either put our faith in Jesus or we choose not to put our faith in Jesus and the grace of God does extend to Nineveh and people that skin people alive and the grace of God does extend to people that commit the crimes that we see every time we open our news app in the morning God can be merciful God is merciful and just but there isn't any sin anyone can commit that would preclude them from being saved. And that's really what we're saying every time we do thank God that he's slow to anger. It's a good thing for us that he is. If he wasn't slow to anger, the Apostle Paul wouldn't have been able to write 
a large portion of the New Testament because God was slow to anger with Paul and he was slow to anger with the thief on the cross and he's been slow to anger with John Robbins and that's good. Um, it's very challenging. It can be very challenging. So I'll try and ask and answer the question, if evil, why mercy? Because this is a real challenge. I'm going to kind of blast through these points, okay? So, and it should be a challenge. It, you know, this should challenge our moral compass as moral beings, you know, when we kind of see sin and realize the actual extent of God's grace to forgive crimes against him. So, and I'm always open for discussion after, you know, after these, after any time I say anything publicly, more than happy to have people come up and say, you said that, I'd like to talk about it. And, and people do, and that's good. So, if evil, why mercy? Humanity's moral standards, and this is really my INTJ personality about to do its thing. Humanity's moral standards show there is a God, this is my suggestion, show there is a God, because if there are moral laws that we abide by, there must be a moral law giver. So whether we're Christian or Muslim or atheist, or New Age, or Buddhist, we read a news app, we see what someone's done, and we say, that is just wrong. Morally wrong, civilly wrong, that person needs to pay for their crime. That's, we all do that. If there were no God, there would be no sense of moral law, would be my suggestion. There can't be a moral standard if there's no one to set the standard because we'd all just do what we wanted to do because there's no one to actually say what's right and wrong. You know, if John wants to get up, if there's no moral law giver and John wants to get up and do something that we would all say is morally wrong, well, if there's no moral law giver, who's to tell John that he's wrong? So there's got to be a moral law giver if there are moral laws that we will abide by, someone that sets the standard. And it is, therefore, no surprise, obviously, that we're sometimes offended at the thought of mercy when, truth be told, we'd rather see judgment, really. God demands a sacrifice for sin, and we have all sinned against him. Romans 3, verse 23. All have sinned, all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and so have I. Only perfection is acceptable as a sacrifice, And Jesus is the only one who has ever lived a perfect life on earth. So if God demands perfection, for us, a good thing is there has been one person born on earth who did live a perfect life, and he's the only one. Therefore, Jesus, who is God, is the only acceptable sacrifice for sins against God. So only God himself can pay the price for sins against him. Andy can't pay the price himself because Andy has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So only God can pay the price that God demands for sins against God, which is incredible mercy, that God himself pays the price so that we can accept that sacrifice and be forgiven. Regardless of what we've done, it's available to us. Jesus willingly gave his life as a sacrifice for sins, if it had been a forced sacrifice, again, thinking about the moral lawgiver and you know, God being morally right, if it had been a forced sacrifice against Jesus' will, 
That would have made God, the father, what Steve Chalk calls a cosmic child abuser, but it wasn't forced and he is not a cosmic child abuser. John 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to pick it back up again. And it's Jesus that willingly says, I am the perfect sacrifice and I choose to sacrifice myself so that these horrendous people can be set free. All of us horrendous people can be set free. Therefore, if repentance and faith in Jesus leads to salvation through his sacrifice for sins, there can be no sin that can't be forgiven because it's perfect. And he's lived a perfect life and died a perfect sacrifice So there can't be any sin that can't be forgiven. Every sin can be forgiven with that one sacrifice. Therefore, salvation is freely available to all. It must be, because there's no sin that can't be forgiven with faith in Jesus. So every single sin that humans can commit on earth can be forgiven through repentance and turning to God. God desires all to be saved. Ezekiel 18, 23, 1 Timothy 2, 4, 2 Peter 3, 9, and, and lots of other verses. They, they all basically say, God wants you to come to repentance. God desires mercy. He doesn't desire to lose people. He desires to save. Although not all will be saved. And obviously, if you're pleased to know, we're not going to do Calvinism versus Arminianism today. Um... But God wants people to be saved. Therefore, if it's only him that can provide the sacrifice, therefore, salvation itself belongs to God. And he's the one that saves. And he's the one that saves through your faith in him and through your acceptance of Jesus as God. So if evil, why mercy? One reason is John 3.16. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life which extends as far as Nineveh and extends as far as Jezfield and Sarah Pedvin, And that's how much God loved the world that he gave his son, who in turn freely gave his own life to be the only sacrifice needed for sins, for every sin. So if there's evil, why is there mercy? It's because God loves us. And he truly loves everyone, everyone. Jonah only wanted his own people to be saved. Jonah didn't want other people to be saved. But all of us have a choice. We either choose to worship God or we don't. We either choose to continue to worship God or we choose not to. We choose to give our life to Jesus and accept him as God or we don't. And we all choose. And if we choose not to, so to be honest, to be 100% honest, and there's visitors here today that I don't recognise. If you choose in your life not to give your life to God, he will allow you that choice. Another thing that God can't do is force you into a relationship with him because he loves you too much to force you into a relationship with himself. It's got to be freely chosen. It's got to be free will. It's got to be, and again, we're not going to get into 
that debate, obviously, today. But God can't and won't force you to accept him, but he's slow to anger and he wants you to accept him and he's kind and he's merciful and you have sinned against him because we have all sinned against him and the only way into relationship with God is by repenting and by putting our faith in Jesus and admitting our own shortcomings and his perfection. There was a... um, there's an atheist called Christopher Hitchens who died a few years ago. Actually, he was an anti-theist. So an atheist doesn't believe in God. An anti-theist doesn't want there to be a God, chooses that there's no God. You know, he says, I've seen the world and I've seen there is no God and that's my choice and that's my right. And Christopher Hitchens died as an anti-theist. How much did God love Christopher Hitchens? Well, enough to send his own son to pay on his behalf to pay for his sins, enough to offer him for 60 something years before he died, free salvation. And how much does God love Christopher Hitchens? Well, enough to say to him, I'm not gonna force you into my presence then. And if you don't want it, then reluctantly, thy will be done. And that's the choice that we all have. And Jesus is, as he says in John's gospel, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And the people of Nineveh understood that. They accepted, oh, this, this is it. You know, we have to repent, and we have to repent now. And the pagan sailors, we haven't, haven't looked at the, the bit with the ship yet, but where Jonah, Jonah admits his own guilt and says, you know, I've brought this on us. I've brought the storm upon us. It's my sin that's brought the storm upon us. Throw me overboard and maybe it will stop. Um, the pagan sailors see the power of God and say, well, we need to repent to God. We need to stop calling on our own idols and we need to turn to God because he's the one that can save us. And all these people that don't deserve mercy are turning to God and saying, give me mercy, please. And God says, yes, I will, because I'm slow to anger. And... There is, the reason that actually I'm preaching on Jonah today is a few weeks back, I was about to, I'd started preparing Amos, and about six weeks ago, um, I was at home making tea for my kids, and got sudden, like horrible, crippling, crushing chest pain, and uh, ended up calling 999. And paramedics came round and did an ECG and so on. And um, I was lying on the bed with the ECG stuff on me, expecting them to say, don't know what it is, you know, hold tight and take some paracetamol. Um, but they looked at me when I did the ECG and said, well, the results show that you might have just had a heart attack, so we need to take you to hospital. So they put me in, in the ambulance and put more ECG things on. And I got a far worse pain um, in the ambulance. And they gave me gas and air. I remember saying to one of the paramedics, less than an hour ago, I was making tea for my kids. And now I'm here. And I'm pretty sure I'm about to die. Because I think I'm having a heart attack. And you've told me that I'm probably having a heart attack. And I think I'm about to die. And I read Jonah the next day. um, And I I was about to preach on Amos. I read Jonah the next day. And I just felt God say, preach on Jonah and tell people this is important 
and tell people there's a sense of urgency because my plan for that hour was cook tea for my kids, sit down. And 45 minutes later, I was in an ambulance with gas and air and an ECG going, I think I'm about to die. And life feels pretty urgent suddenly. <laughs> and there is an urgency to life. Life is happening now to you now. And it might be like the, the people at the Commonwealth Games or the picture before that, it might be that you've allowed this thing to kind of take you away from God as a thing. It's my job or it's my friends or it's whatever it is. It might be this bail in your life. It might be this golden calf in your life that you're going, oh, yeah, I have let that in. I will turn from it and I will turn back to God. But just like with Nineveh, you know, God would say, do it now. Don't do it in six months. Don't keep turning away from me. Turn back towards me because I'm merciful. And I sent my son to die on your behalf, to be in relationship with you. And if, you, if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your saviour, and Sophie, uh, who was leading the meeting, texted me the other day and said, I really think you know, we need to do salvation, you know, do a salvation altar call on Sunday. I texted her back and said, well, that's how it ends. You know, that's how this ends, by saying, actually, Jesus is the only way to salvation and forgiveness. And to be honest, you don't know there's going to be a tomorrow. We just don't. And I might be playing bad cop to everybody else's good cop. <laughs> but it's true. And I, when I was lying in the ambulance thinking, I think I'm about to die, my main thought was, I'd rather not. Actually, I don't feel like I've had much warning. And there's things I want to do. Um, but when I was in the hospital, actually, I was lying there thinking, okay, I'm about to get out and go home, but I know that one day I won't. I remember lying in the hospital thinking, there is going to be a day where I don't get out of here alive and I go to be with Bonnie and Alan and David, which is good. But if you don't know... Jesus as your saviour don't be like Christopher Hitchens who said I'm going to just choose that there's no God because if that's the case as God did with Christopher Hitchens he'll say then thy will be done I'm not going to force you and I know this is heavy and I know this is challenging but this is the length and breadth and depth of the mercy of God and the love of God and that Jesus died to pay for you to be in relationship with him is the most important decision you could ever make. But it is a choice and God's not going to force you and he's going to say, I offer you salvation freely. Do you want it? The band want to come back up, please. So really, just as we're singing, as we're about to sing, I'm just going to read the final part that I wanted to read today, back into Jonah chapter 2. So this is Jonah, 
But really, this is Jesus. Okay. Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So he said, throw me overboard, it's all my fault. Chuck me overboard, I need to pay. Which is good, noble of him. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And this is Jonah, but this is pointing forward to Jesus. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So we stand together. If you need to repent, I know that's an unpopular word in 21st century church speak, but if you need to repent, and say, God, I have been worshipping a false God. I have been, I know you and I love you, but I've turned away from you to worship a golden calf. If you know that, you know that. And as we sing now, the amazing thing is, just turn to God and say, God, I just repent of doing that. And I want to turn back to you and have you as the only God in my life. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, you have a choice to make. Frankly, you do. And the conversation can go on past here, obviously, the conversation can go on past here today, but you do have a choice to make. Jesus freely offers mercy to anyone, anyone who accepts him and says, Jesus is Lord and I want I want that life. But you have a choice to make. So if that's you, come and talk to me or Andy or Sophie or Lynn or Clive at the end because it's a free gift of grace available to you because the grace of God can extend to every and does extend to every single person on the face of the planet. And that's amazing grace.